Amen. Hey, we're on chapter 8, that's right, on page 89, and once again, we're on the topic of future events. Anybody ever uh, talk to anybody that ever has some sort of an inkling about wanting to know the future? Yeah, I think everybody does, obviously, and uh, again, that's the privilege for you and I, the Christian, is we can know the future, and we can know the future 100%, absolutely for sure, no doubt about it. God has given us in great detail, not just limited knowledge, but in great detail, what's going to happen to the planet, uh, and it's not pretty if you don't belong to Christ, okay? So, so why should we study future events? We already saw, well, hey, page 90 tells us uh, there's many blessings, makarios, we saw before, the, uh, the book of Revelation at the very beginning says, you are blessed, not just once, but twice, but three times, and at the very end in the book throws in another blessing uh, if you pay attention to prophecy why because we saw prophecy believe it or not comforts us it calms us it converts us uh, it cleanses us it compels us and it clarifies again hello we're the winners not the losers okay we're a part of the winning team and, and then we said well what's next on god's prophetic time clock well the next thing folks that's going to happen in bible prophecy much of the old testament but but that's not just about the, the first coming of jesus christ but but much of the old testament deals with the first coming of jesus christ a lot also deals with the second coming. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies concerning his first coming. There's also over 300 concerning his second. And if he fulfilled the first 300, how many guys think he's going to fulfill the second? Every single one, okay? And, and so much of that does that. But, okay, but the Bible pr- records for us a lot of information that we have the privilege to understand what's going to happen specifically in the last days the Bible talks about. Okay, and the next event that's on the, the plate right after dawn, and I left it up here for the sake of effect, as you guys can clearly see with my massively large writing here and artwork, uh, is, well, I forgot his hair, sorry about that, there we go, uh, is uh, the rapture. The rapture of the church, okay, is the next thing on the plate. And as we saw there, uh, second paragraph of 92, that's where we left off. Uh, Let's take a look. More information is given on this event, the rapture of the church, in Paul's first letter to the believers in Thessalonica. And uh, in fact, let's read that text before we start to describe it there. Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And uh, if you find 2 Thessalonians, what do you do? Take a look. If you find... Third Thessalonians, what do you do? <laughs> Chuck it, it's not in there, that's right. That goes next to the book of Hezekiah. How many guys fell, as you turn there, actually fell for the book of Hezekiah joke? How many guys actually, you don't want to admit it, do you? When somebody said, turn to the book of Hezekiah, as a young Christian, you look for it. Yeah. And you, know, you know you're out there. It's okay, you're there. Anyway, that's right. Tonight's uh, sermon is on lying and how it's detrimental to the body. Okay, yes, you're there. First uh, Thessalonians chapter four. <laughs> Let's read the context there. And it's talking about the coming of the Lord. Okay, he's talking about the rapture, okay? And again, uh, maybe some other time we can get to this, but uh, when it comes to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the rapture, uh, people who would deny the rapture flat out try to say that the rapture passages are dealing with the second coming. Uh Uh-uh, two totally different events. Okay, not just in timing, but in descriptions completely. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, he comes back literally on planet Earth. Rapture, he doesn't hit the Earth. You know, people say, well, that means if you believe in the rapture, uh, he's going to say he's got three comings? No, there's only two comings. Uh, The first one, we go meet him in the air. Okay, but the second coming, the real one, he's coming back to planet Earth. He's landing on planet Earth. Okay, he's going to put down the battle of Armageddon and establish his millennial reign. But let's take a look at that text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says this, Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, which is a euphemism for death. Okay, they've died, Christians. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. So if it's talking about the rapture passage here, he's going to bring with him at the rapture who? Okay, so our fellow Christians, okay, in the church age, 
Okay, post the resurrection of Jesus Christ, anybody who gets saved, the church age, Jew or Gentile, is coming back with him. They're going to be there. Now, the Bible clearly says we're going to see two passages. Uh, Paul talks about uh, Philippians. He talks about, uh, I desire to depart to be with a giant limbo. I'm going to be in limbo, burning, purging my sins forever. Then maybe through my own suffering, I can somehow make it to heaven. No, that's a lie. That's a false teaching called purgatory. No, to be with Christ. Paul reiterates that in 2 Corinthians 5.8. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay, not some unknown. You're floating out there. Ooh, you know, or you fall asleep forever. And, you know, no. Okay, and that's what he's talking about. He says, so, so when he comes back at the rapture, those who've already died, because the moment you die as a Christian in this time frame, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You go to be with Jesus. But at that point, you just get your spiritual body. 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, now let's continue on. So he's coming back with those people. And he says this, so we believe that. And we'll bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep or died in him. Now, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left till the coming of the Lord, the rapture, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. Well, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the rapture of us who are still alive on the earth, right? And so here comes Jesus, right? And here comes all the, the saints, okay, who've already died and gone to heaven, uh, straight to heaven, and uh, here. And so when they come back to get us at the rapture, they're coming with Jesus, okay? So how are we going to certainly not precede them? Well, this we talked a little bit last week, if you talk, were here, okay, is this is where they get what's called their resurrected bodies, okay? And that's where their bodies in the grave and all that stuff is going to be resurrected at the rapture. And so we're not going to precede them. In other words, they get their resurrected bodies first. Their body, they get reunited with their body, head up, okay? And then right after that, we get our resurrected bodies right away, translate in the twinkling of an eye, okay? And then we go up to be with them. Okay, in the air. We'll read that here in just a second. And so that's what's unique for the generation who's alive at the rapture. Uh, we will never get that, if you will, spiritual body and then later get your resurrected body. It's all going to happen just like that. Okay, we literally, you're just standing there, whatever, sitting there. And uh, wouldn't it be cool if, again, your last thing was you're leading somebody to Christ. Next thing you know, resurrected body, you're going up towards to be with Jesus. It's going to be cool. That's what he's talking about. It's all a timing issue there. And unfortunately, if you don't pay attention to the text and if you don't look it through, then people get this all messed up, okay, unfortunately. And, uh, but let's continue on. He says there, he says, Now, uh, for the Lord himself is going to come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ, these here, okay, the saints have already gone, they're dead, they're in Christ, they're dead, but they're with Jesus, they're, okay. He says there, he says that they're going to rise first. They're going to get their resurrection bodies first, okay, is what he's talking about there. And after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up with them in the clouds, we get our bodies, resurrected bodies, in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. So does he ever come to the earth at this point? This is not the second coming, okay, as some people would say, unfortunately. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And he says this, therefore, encourage each other with these words, right? Uh, if there is no rapture, and if we're headed into the seven-year tribulation, and we saw a little bit a couple weeks ago about just how horrid that is, just a, a, a snippet from uh, Revelation 6 through Revelation 19, that's not encouraging. Uh, if we were even going to go through the first half of the seven-year tribulation and, and just dealing with this, the sealed judgments, with the, the, the one-fourth of the earth being annihilated, the global famine, the horrible death, and, and then the, the, it, that's not encouraging. So when you understand it correctly, that this is encouraging. Okay, praise God. And we'll get into that a little bit even more detail. In fact, if you skip down there, it's still in the context because remember when this was written, it was a letter. There was no chapter divisions. 
So if you skip down there, down to uh, verse uh, 11, um, he also says, therefore, Paul says it again in, in chapter five, therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you're doing. So he says it not just once, he says it twice in that passage. The great news of the next prophetic event on God's time uh, calendar uh, is the rapture of the church. Encourage, be encouraged. This is really gonna happen. Okay, and we very well, I believe, can be uh, a part of that generation. Okay, well, let's continue on. He says this. He says, now Paul is writing to give them information about the fate of those brethren who had died since he was with them last. His motivation was to what? Not torture them, but to comfort them. He writes in 4.14 that on the basis of our belief in the resurrection of Christ, we should also realize that Christ will return one day and there'll be another resurrection. He then gives the series of events that will be uh, involved in this resurrection. First, he makes it clear that those who are alive, us, will not have an advantage over those who have preceded or gone before us in death as Christians. Christ will descend from heaven, the Father's house, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Now, some people, I would say falsely, would say, well, there it is. It says the trumpet of God. And if you understand the judgments of the seven-year tribulation, the first half is dealing with the seals, the second starts with the trumpets, and then it ends in a big bang with the bold judgments. And it says right here in this rapture passage, I agree with you, it's about the rapture, but it says it's not going to happen until you hear the trumpet of God. So that means that the rapture doesn't hear until the trumpets start. Sorry, wrong trumpet. Just because it means trumpet, or it says trumpet here, that doesn't mean it's the trumpet of judgments from God. As we saw before, what determines something's meaning? Context, context, context. Again, the classic example. I could say, hey, Jordan, that shirt's kind of cool. Or, hey, Jordan, you're going back to Canada. And it's really cool right there. It's like, hey, man, that trailer you made was really cool. You know, so, and stuff like that. But uh, your attitude towards me is kind of cool, man. What's the matter? You know, I thought we were getting along. Uh, oh, okay, exact same words, spelled the exact same way. What determined the meaning? context same thing just because the word trumpet appears in the scripture doesn't mean it's speaking about these trumpets and i say it's clearly not as we saw last time if you're here when we looked at the marriage ceremonies when the bride uh, groom was coming to get his bride before she got into the house what was the jewish custom the bridegroom cometh come out and meet him right that's the trumpet he's talking about has nothing to do with these again unfortunately taking it out of context okay and he's talking about the rapture the rapture the coming the snatching away of his bride and again, this is the same thing and the same word that Paul uses here, okay? The father's house. Remember, he said the father's house. What's that? That's the hoopah that he's building, the bridal chamber for you and I, okay, is the same thing that's going on here. Then the bodies of those, when the trumpet goes off, we hear that the trap, for the rapture, the bodies of those who have died before Christ's return for his church will be resurrected and the resurrected or glorified bodies will unite with their spirits which have been in the presence of Christ since their death. Again, Philippians 1, 2 Corinthians 5 eight. Next, we who are alive... Okay, and remain shall be caught up, harpazo, uh, together with them in the air. And thus we will, listen to this, we will shall ever be with the Lord. Okay, awesome. There's two ways currently, folks, that we can get off this planet. Anybody excited about getting off this planet? Seems like the older it gets, it's just the more you, mm, ah. It's, can't wait for heaven, man. And when you're younger and you still, you know, want to get married and you still got all these things and, you know, well, maybe God, just let me do this first. Man, you get older and, I don't know, maybe it is the marriage thing. I don't know. Hey, God, give me home. I don't know. I, heaven's awesome. I'm sorry. I repent. I, I, I didn't mean it. No, but uh, that's for another series. But uh, anyway, so, <laughs> no, but that's, that's not what uh, we have. This should be a great joy, something to look forward to. It's something to encourage us. One day we are off this planet, okay? And there's two ways to get off this planet. Either you're going to die, 
But praise God, when we die, you take your last breath here instantaneously. No limbo, no nothing, no taking that giant nap like when I preach on Sundays. But uh, uh, it's, uh, no, and it's not that. Uh, anyway, but maybe I should think, maybe I should rationalize that, Ron, make myself feel better when I see that. Oh, they're getting ready for the soul sleep. No, that's a false teaching. So, uh, but no, I don't believe in that. But anyway, so, but uh, no, uh, so you're gonna die, but praise God, absent from the body, you're bang. Next thing you know, you're right there with Jesus. Instantaneously, man, isn't that awesome? Or we're not even gonna experience death. We're just walking around doing whatever we're doing, hopefully serving Jesus, hopefully leading somebody to Christ. Okay, and then bang, instantly glorified bodies were right there to be with him. That's our two options in this time frame, which either one, hey, that's an awesome future. We can know what's gonna happen uh, in the future. And that's what he's talking about. The Latin term here is the Greek verb harpazo is rapper in the uh, Latin or raptura. Okay, and thus the event came to be known as the rapture, is your first blank there, the rapture of the church. Now again, we've talked about this before, I believe, but critics will say, well, uh, the rapture teaching is unbiblical because the word rapture really doesn't appear in the scripture. Okay, that's true. It's a translation of the word harpazo, which is in the original Koine Greek. Okay, but as we saw before, and I'm sure you guys got all these studies memorized by now, uh, the Bible, the New Testament, was originally written in what is called Koine Greek. Right. Well, guess what? Uh, after many centuries, the language uh, changed to Latin. Latin, I believe, is a military language that eventually caught on and became the language of the Western civilization in that area over there. Okay, and then that's when the Bible was translated into what was called the Latin Vulgate, okay, which means where we get the word vulgar, it just means common, okay? Koine is common, it was the common Greek, okay? There's classical Greek, there's Koine Greek, stuff like that. This was the common Greek language, the common language of the everyday guy, right? Which, because why? Why did God pick that? Because he wants it in common day language for the average person to read. You don't have to be some, I, won't, I can't read the Bible, I'll never understand. No, he wants you to understand. And you don't need some studious person with 18 degrees to only be able to, uh, go by what their word is. You can get in there yourself. Uh, but then, since the language of the culture changed to Latin, then they produced what was called the Latin Vulgate. Okay, Jerome, Church Father, was the guy that did that. Uh, but anyway, and that was the common language of the day. Okay, well, then that changed to, how many of you guys speak Latin now? Yeah, okay. But it used to be the language. You know, Western, so it changed to English. Okay, and then that's when you have the Reformation. Then you have people like uh, Wycliffe and Huss and Luther and Calvin and Zwingli who literally, a lot of them were literally murdered and many others were murdered because they had the audacity to translate the Bible from Latin, which nobody was speaking anymore, that the Catholic Church said in 1229, don't uh, translate to English because then nobody will get to read it. And then the, these guys were killed for put it in English for the common language for you and I today uh, to read. Okay, so... All that said, okay, when it comes to, yes, in the Koine Greek, uh, it is the Greek word uh, harpazo, okay, but the language changed to rapture or raptura, okay, which is an English translation of the rapture. So what in the world does that got to do? The rapture is not taught in the Bible. The word doesn't appear. Okay, you, you can say the same thing and critics do. The, the teaching of the Trinity is not biblical because the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. You might get that from a Jehovah's Witness or something who doesn't believe in the Trinity. Oh, really? Okay, but the teaching does. Who was at Jesus' baptism? Answer that one. You got uh, Jesus, the Son, and you got God the Father announcing from the sky, this is my Son, listen to him. I'm well, I'm well pleased. And then you got God the Holy Spirit lighting on him as a dove. All in the same mass. How do you explain that one? 
right? How do you explain uh, Genesis uh, 1, 24, I believe, when it says, let us, Elohim in the plural, uh, create man in our image? Does that mean there's many gods? No, there's only one God. But if you understand that God has revealed himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it makes perfect sense. So yes, the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, but the concept is. And finally, just one more, and this is a Bible prophecy one, uh, m- millennium. Uh, people say, well, the word millennium does not occur in the Bible. There is no millennial kingdom. Uh-uh, there's no such thing. And, and actually, that's a very popular view today. Okay, yeah, the word millennium, the English word millennium doesn't, but the Greek word for a thousand does, which is what the English word millennium means. So when you, anyway, it's as crazy as that is, that's some of the justification that people will try to deny the doctrine uh, of the rapture of the church. Let's continue on. So it means there are literally to snatch, to seize, to suddenly and vehemently, or to take away in the sense to, listen, steal, carry off, or drag away. And remember, that was the word we saw last time that was used with the, uh, you know, I guess for ladies, that's a romantic thing to have some guy, guy rip you out of your house and take you off. <laughs> you know, I guess that's a cool thing. Uh, ladies, anybody ever want that? Did anybody ever, besides me, try to do the romantic thing? And at, when you got married and after the ceremony, you went back to your place and you picked up your wife to bring her over the threshold. Did you even try to pull that off? Anybody ever hit your wife's head on the door and it didn't? Yeah, again, that's for another study. Let's continue on. Uh, but anyway, so that's what's happening. He, he's going to steal us away. Just, he's coming to get his bride. He's, whoa, I gotcha. Come up here to be with me forever and ever. Just as this would have been a hello, a comfort to the original readers of this letter, so it should be a comfort to us when we lose Christian family and friends. Do you realize that? Okay, so I don't think sometimes we get this. When, when the rapture happens, it's not just Jesus. Who's coming with Jesus? Okay, let, let me just give you some recent ones of people we know here at sunrise. Jose's coming back. And we get to see Jose get his resurrected body first and then he's back up there we'll be right on his heels isn't that awesome all of our christian loved ones our spouses our kids and all those who've gone on before us as christians they're coming back at the rapture what a family event that that's going to be it's something glorious something special we need to be looking forward to but again if you never study bible prophecy you're going to miss out on that blessing uh, what and uh, when is the tribulation? Although the period is discussed in several Old Testament passages, the passages that provide the basic framework is in Daniel chapter 9. All right, let's take a look at that passage there. He quotes it for us. 70 weeks. How many weeks? 70 weeks. Now, I'm telling you, this is where you've got to do your homework. Why do we even have a seven-year tribulation? Why is the church not even in the tribulation? A lot of those answers, folks, are you've got to go back into the Old Testament where this time frame first appears. It's called proper biblical interpretation. Okay. And, and this is where it occurs. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people, speaking of the Israelites, uh, the Jewish people, and your holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to what? Make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to steal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. People say, well, this 70 weeks vision that he's talking about, it's already passed. No, there's just a couple things out there. Uh, has sin completely come to an end? Well, that's not come to pass. How about, is there everlasting righteousness on the planet? Oh, so we're not there yet, right? Well, that's not going to happen until at the end of the seven-year tribulation, okay? So that's common sense. So we know we're talking about something yet future, the 70 weeks prophecy. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, Jesus, 
Listen, there's going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, for those of you hooked on math, how many is that together? 69. There you go. It will be built again with plaza and moat, uh, even in uh, times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, okay, so he's actually talking about the 69. Why? Because in the context there, it's 7 plus 62, which is, we'll see at the triumphal entry of Jesus, is your 69. It's 69 by that time frame, okay? So after this 62, which is adding the 7, that's where you get the 69. So that means how many weeks are left? One. This is why we have a seven-year tribulation. It's the final week or uh, seven years of Daniel's prophecy. And again, as we're going to see the context, he's asking God, how's it all going to come to an end? Okay, and that's, it's, well, not until you got 70 weeks of prophecy. Okay, he's answering that question. But anyway, let's continue on. Then after the 62 weeks, adding the seven, the Messiah is going to be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Well, there you go. So you got your seven, your 62, which is 69, and your final week right there. So that's where you get your 70. Remember, he started at 70 weeks. Okay, he determined it. Uh, but in the middle of the week, halfway in the seven-year tribulation, he, speaking about the Antichrist, will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, in Daniel's concern for his, is your next blank there, his nation and holy city, your next two blanks, Jerusalem, his nation, holy city, he poured out his heart to God in intercession. In response, God let him know that he had determined that before he brought in everlasting righteousness to the nation, again, that's the context. Who's he speaking to? The Jewish people. Uh, question. When he's writing this in historical context, in biblical context, scriptural context, where's the church? Nowhere around. The timing when Daniel wrote the book of Daniel and recorded this prophecy for us in the context of who he's talking about is the Jewish people. The church wouldn't even come into existence until Jesus arrived on the scene and, and rose from the dead. Acts chapter 2, the church was born. That's four or five hundred years later. Right? In fact, Paul says, oh, by the way, in the Old Testament, these guys didn't see it. The church is a mysterion, it's a mystery. They didn't understand that there was going to be this interlude between the 69th week and the final week, what's called the church age, where Jew or Gentile, the church age, is going to be. So here's my point in saying that. So the context for the seven-year tribulation was written in a time frame where the church was not even in existence. So why do you keep trying to cram the church into this that has nothing to do with the church? You see my point? And yet people continue to do that because you're not doing your homework. If you want to understand the seven-year tribulation, don't just look at the book of Revelation. You need to start with the book of Daniel and grab the meaning of the seven-year tribulation, the final week, in its proper context. Okay, and again, we'll get to that eventually, the purpose of that. So God let him know that he determined uh, before he brought in everlasting righteousness to the nation, Israel, the Jewish people, there would be a period of 70 weeks of years or 70 times seven, for those of you hooked on math again, is... 490, that's right, okay? Now, let's take a look at how awesome a, uh, uh, this is. In the, in a, uh, flip over to a few more pages so you're going to see this. You're going to see a chart. Let's take a look at that real quick. Okay, a few pages forward. Uh, look at the chart there. And I'm going to read that to you because I've actually used this in the past. This is part of our study we uh, had, did the Bible really come from God? And Bible prophecy not only helps us to know future events accurately, intimately, in great detail, 
Uh, but it's one of the ways that we can demonstrate the Bible had to come from God. Because if a book came from God who's above and beyond time, then, and he could see all the time from the beginning, from the end, from the, the whole start, the whole at one shot, like he's reading the pages of a book, then we'd expect that if he wrote something down for us uh, in future events, then he's going to nail it 100% every single time. Well, that's a proof that the Bible really did come from God because he does just that. He records future events, 100% track record, uh, and, and, then, uh, and this is one of them. This is one of the Old Testament fulfillments of that, and it has to do with Daniel's 70th week prophecy. Listen to this. In 444 BC, and we know that historically, even secular historians, okay, the, uh, the decree went out by Artaxerxes to allow Nehemiah, and we read that, of course, in Nehemiah, but we know historically when that happened, uh, to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. So that's the, seven, that's the first seven, the seven years, right, that he talked about in the seventh week prophecy. So mark that date, 444 BC. We count seven times seven is 49. That puts you at 395 BC. And that just happens to be when the wall, the city and the streets of Jerusalem were rebuilt. Then you got to, to count seven times 62 because he says there's gonna be 62 weeks after that seven until the Messiah, the prince to come is gonna be cut off, right? Well, do the math. That's 434 uh, years and the Messiah was cut off or rejected by Israel. That puts you historically at the date, March 30th, 33 AD. And guess what that was? The exact day when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but they rejected him. Right? The Messiah was cut off. Okay? And then that was it. Bang! And all that's left is the final week, and that's this one up here. The Old Testament prophets didn't get it. It was a mystery to them. The church age. Okay? And this is the age that we're in now, okay? And uh, they didn't realize, if you will, there's an interlude here and that you're gonna see one final week left on the planet, okay? But anyway, so that's what we see. Uh, this leaves one week or uh, seven years. That's why it says seven-year tribulation left on God's prophetic, uh, prophetic time clock. And, uh, and then what's gonna happen is at that time, God is in this remaining seven years, he's gonna be dealing with who? What's it say there? His chosen people, the Jews. Again, that's the context. We're going to see the purposes of the seven-year tribulation is God is going to restore and fulfill the not only seven weeks prophecy to bring in finally everlasting righteousness and a complete end of sin when Jesus is ruling and reigning. Okay, but you're also going to see at this time frame that he's going to bring Israel back to him. Paul says in Romans chapter 11 that they're under a temporary blindness. Okay, and if we get that far, we'll read that Zechariah 13 passage that finally halfway into the seven-year tribulation, uh, their eyes are open. They realize, oh man, have we been duped? Jesus was the Messiah. And finally, it's the good news, bad news. We saw this on Sunday. Hey, they finally get right with God and they finally realize that Jesus was the Messiah, but they pay with it for a horrible price. Two-thirds die at the hands of the Antichrist. He's not done with the Jewish people. He has a remnant. It's a temporary blindness. And you and I, as Paul says in that argument there in Romans, he says, you and I should rejoice. Don't, go, don't get all high and mighty. The only reason why we're even in this God's blessing of a relationship with him is because we were like a wild uh, olive shoot. We've been grafted in, okay, with the people of Israel to enjoy the blessings uh, of God. Okay, but anyway, so once again, he deals with the Jewish people. Uh, and uh, again, people, unfortunately, I would say, try to keep squeezing the church in there. It's like, I don't, it doesn't even fit the context before we even get into the whole issue of the position of the rapture. But anyway, let's continue on. He says that uh, uh, the first period of time would be from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince. You're gonna have uh, Messiah cut off after 62 weeks. And this occurred when the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was rejected by the leaders of the nation at the triumphal entry. Although it was not revealed to Daniel, we know why the last week of years was separate from the previous weeks. This period is the church age 
is your next blank there, church age, when God is using Christ's church to evangelize the peoples of the world, Jew and Gentile. This church age is going to end at the rapture, and then the seven-year tribulation, the final week, is going to start ticking off on God's time clock. And what's the event that starts that? Back in the context, Daniel 9.27, the Antichrist makes a covenant with the people of Israel. See that? And uh, it begins, the final week begins, okay? Let's continue on. Daniel indicates the seven-year period will begin with the signing of a covenant. And it's going to be made between many, okay, the many, which contextually refers to the Jewish people, your people, your holy city. And he that signs the covenant refers back contextually to the prince to come. This prince is the product of the revived Roman Empire since it was the Roman general Titus who destroyed uh, 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 Israel, Jerusalem, back in 70 AD. And other uh, verses call the Antichrist the man of lawlessness. He's also called the beast. He's also called the Antichrist and many other names as well. In fact, let me just give you a little bit of a characteristic of that. It's kind of funny if you look on the internet. Unfortunately, uh, everybody has, I, I think ever since I was in Bible college, uh, people had their, their theory as to uh, who's, and it start, started back with Ronald Reagan. Uh, back there, they said he was Antichrist. And the whole basis for him being the Antichrist is because his name is Ronald Wilson Reagan. Ronald is six letters. Wilson is six letters. That's right. Reagan is with six letters. He's got to be the Antichrist. Hmm. They did the same thing uh, with every preceding president. I've even, you've seen videos out there now with, uh, I was talking to a guy on the phone. It, Obama is the actual Antichrist. I said, well, I, I don't agree with a lot of what he's doing. That's a, okay, a given. Uh, but I'm sorry, I don't believe he's the Antichrist. Well, if you look at the list in the Bible and the characteristics of the Antichrist, I'm going to read some for you. Uh, then he, he fits almost all of them. E, there's your problem. Most all of them. If it's the actual Antichrist, what's the percentage? It has to be 100% or you're saying that God got it wrong. Okay, is the whole point. Let me read to you some. Uh, The Antichrist, according to Scripture, Daniel 7, Revelation 13, uh, says he comes from among 10 kings in the restored Roman Empire. And uh, he he has authority similar to ancient Babylon, Persia, and the Greeks. Uh, He's going to subdue three kings. He's different from the other kings. He's going to rise from obscurity, a little horn. Uh, He's going to speak boastfully. He's going to blaspheme God, slander his name in his dwelling place. He's going to oppress God's people. He's going to try to change the calendar, perhaps, to define a new era related to himself. He's going to try to change the laws, perhaps, to gain an advantage for his new kingdom or era. He will not be, this is awesome, he will not be succeeded, Daniel 7, by another earthly ruler, but by Christ. Do you realize that? We, we said this before, but man, I just love it. It's one of my favorite puns. No, no more bad presidents. No more crooked politicians. Why? Because we've broken that word down before. Poly means many. Ticks means blood-sucking creatures. Okay? No more of that, right? It's gone. The world only makes it up to the Antichrist, which is the worst one ever. But after that, Never again. Never again will planet Earth ever be under an ungodly rule in any aspect. The Bible says in the Millennial Kingdom, that's in the next uh, uh, week, Lord willing, uh, is, uh, it's going to be a time where part of our reward as being faithful in this church age, when we come back with Jesus at the second coming, we get to rule and reign with him. We get to be a part of politics. 
Okay, but it's going to mean something different by then. So we're going to rule and reign in righteousness. We get to rule and reign with him. That's part of the, part of the deal, okay, as the Bible says. Okay, but, but think about that. The Antichrist is the last evil ruler. And, and can I tell you something? I'm not going to say he's, uh, uh, I don't think he's Obama, and you'll get to that in a second. Uh, and again, I don't agree with everything. Uh, but I, I would say it wouldn't surprise me if the actual Antichrist is alive and well right now on planet Earth. When you put everything together, we don't know the day nor the hour. But uh, he very well could be alive. But here's, if you will, in a weird sense, the good news. He's going to be the last one. The last rotten ruler in the history of mankind. That's it. And that's what he says uh, here. He's not going to be succeeded by another earthly ruler. He's going to confirm a covenant with many of the Jewish people. This covenant will likely involve the establishment of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Anybody want to build a temple anywhere? That's happening today as well. He's going to put it in, though, to the Jewish sacrifice and offerings. Three and a half years. He's going to declare himself to be God. He's not, uh, he will not answer to a higher earthly authority. He's going to do as he pleases. He will uh, show no regard for the religion of his ancestors. Uh, he will not believe in any God at all except himself. Uh, he will have no regard or desire for women, which means he's either going to be asexual or he's going to be a homosexual. That's what the scripture says. So you got one of the two. Okay. And again, if you're going to be the Antichrist, you have to fit every single one of these. Not 90%. Every single one of them, okay? He's going to claim to be greater than any god. He's going to claim to be God. He's going to honor, if you will, the god of military. In other words, his whole focus and attention is going to be on his military, and he will conquer lands and distribute them. His arrival on the world scene will be accompanied by miracles, signs, and wonders. It's with the help of the cohort of the false prophet. Uh, Either he or his companion, the false prophet, is going to claim to be the Christ. He will claim that Jesus did not come in the flesh or that Jesus did not rise bodily from the grave and he's going to deny Jesus as the Messiah. He's going to be worshipped by many people. He will hate a nation that will initially have some control over his kingdom, but he's going to destroy that nation. He will uh, appear to survive a fatal injury. He will, uh, his name will be related to the number 666, not Ronald Wilson Reagan. Uh, it means more than that. Uh, he is actually going to be empowered by the devil himself. Okay, so if you're going to say anybody's the Antichrist, do your homework. And that's just 27 characteristics. I believe there's a lot more. Okay, it has to fit. The person has to fit every single one of them, not most of them. Okay, let's continue on. But that's what we saw. That's who the Antichrist is. Now, this guy, after making the covenant with the Jewish nation, he's going to break it in the middle period of the week. Okay, when you see in the scripture, 1,260 days, it's like, well, wait a second. If you add 365 times 3.5 years, then that doesn't... Well, it's because they used what was called back then, the Jewish calendar, was the lunar year. And the lunar year is 360, not our 365. So it still works out contextually. A little tip for you when you're doing biblical math. Okay, but that's what he says. He's going to break it up in the halfway mark. Daniel writes he's going to put a stop uh, uh, to sacrifice and grain offering on the wings of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Christ referred to this event in Matthew 24, and it is apparent from this verse that the Antichrist will allow the Jewish people to rebuild, to rebuild their temple and resume the Old Testament sacrificial system after signing the covenant with him. At the midpoint of the tribulation period, he will break the covenant, stop the sacrifice, and as Paul reveals in his second letter to Thessalonians, he will exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. I don't know if you guys remember that, but on that, gosh, what was that first, second, or third study we did on the final countdown, we were dealing with the Jewish people and I forget if it was the second one or the third one. I think it was the second one. And we dealt with the, the issue of the rebuilt temple. 
Okay? And I came across and shared with you guys that actual animation, okay, of the flyby of the actual blueprints for one of the inner chambers of the newly rebuilt temple. And I remember the first time I saw, and I was excited to share that with you guys, and I think I popped that question in your head. Could you believe that maybe for the very first time, even back 2,000 years ago when these prophecies were being made, and even further back with Daniel even talking about this, that you and I might be the first generation that ever got to see a 3D animated look at the actual chamber that the actual Antichrist is going to be walking through and eventually into the temple and say, worship me, I'm God. That's the generation that we live in. That's how close it is. And that's what he's going to do, okay, at the midway point. He's going to stop the sacrifice. He's going to go there, exalt himself uh, over every so-called God, an object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple to explain himself to be God. The passage also indicates that at the end of the second three and a half year period, the Antichrist, praise God, is going to be destroyed. Okay, he's the loser. The entire seven year period is described in more detail in Revelation 6 through 19. That's that uh, big giant sweep we saw before where basically you're going through the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, and it's just, it gets worse as you go. And that's why Jesus describing this period talks about, you think the first half's bad? That ain't nothing. This is the seven year tribulation. The back half's called the great tribulation. Okay, it's horrid. You got one set of sealed judgments going on here. You got two different judgments going on here. And it's a rapid fire event uh, compressed in, uh, more in the same amount of time that you had in the first half. And then he says he likens it unto birth pains. And as we know, that's not by chance because we know the closer you get to the birth, the easier it gets. No, the closer you get to the birth and the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the seven year tribulation, oh, and that's exactly what's depicted there. It's going to get worse. Man, even if you can make it through the first half, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get bad. Now, what's the purpose? We'll take a look at one, then we'll close for tonight. God's basic purpose for the tribulation is that it's time of what? Judgment. Is the church going to be under the judgment of God? There's a Bama judgment, but that's a reward judgment that happens after we get saved. But as far as judgment for sin, is that anything anywhere in our future at any time? No. Where did that judgment take place? Follow the finger, follow the finger. The cross, that's right, okay? For those of you watching the video, there was a cross over there. Okay, so uh, anyway, I wasn't pointing at Tom's head, even though he's got a cool head, but uh, that's nice. Uh, but uh, no, okay, that's done, it's been, right? So, so again, the purpose of the seven-year tribulation is for judgment for sin. Why are you putting the church in there? That's a, what, are you saying that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is not sufficient? That we have to be judged more for our sin? Stop and think about it. Okay? And let's continue on. While at the same time holding forth the grace of the gospel, which will precede Christ's 1,000 year reign in Jerusalem from David's throne. Okay? Now, why would God, and we'll see this in the next one, we'll, we'll probably pick up on that next week. Why would God have the gospel still go forth during the seven year tribulation? Well, uh, I think number one, it, he demonstrates his mercy even in the midst of his judgment right? Aren't you glad? Okay. And second of all, it answers some questions that take place during the thousand year reign, the millennial kingdom. Okay. Because see, we at rapture, guess what? We, we not only just get our resurrected body. Okay. And, and those who died before us, uh, Christians get their resurrection body. And we're up here in heaven enjoying the marriage supper of the lamb for the seven years. Okay. As you saw, but when we come back down, one thing that we lost is the sin nature. Can anybody say praise God? Okay. Uh, praise God. Okay. So when we come back at the second coming of Jesus Christ, we don't have a sin nature. 
Well, why is that important? Because you got something going on at the end of the seven year, uh, a thousand year reign that's called the final rebellion. And it says uh, Satan this whole time has been bound for the thousand years. Okay, he's loosed at the end of the thousand years. Okay, to stir up one final rebellion. Well, wait a second, rebellion is sin. How am I going to rebel if I don't have a sin nature? So who's going to be there to rebel? Enter the gospel going forth. People can still get saved during the seven-year tribulation. Most of them are going to get annihilated, right? Two-thirds of the Jewish people are going to be wiped out. But that's not even counting all the other people who get saved after the rapture. There's going to be a horrible slaughter. That's the fifth seal we see in the first half of the seven-year tribulation. It's going to be an absolute horrible And they're like, God, avenge our blood. It's a horrible scene. Okay, but... You're going to have people, because we know in the Bible, in the Revelation, it says it talks about an angel harvest, okay, at the end. And you're going to see those, the wicked dead, okay, get harvested, uh, who are still alive, haven't been killed, okay, but they're still alive on the earth. The ones who still didn't get saved, even after God demonstrated his mercy in the midst of his judgment, they're going to be harvested by the angels chucked into hell. Those who did get saved and somehow managed to survive in the seven-year tribulation, they're harvested by the angels and they get to go into the millennial kingdom. Now, they've never been translated by either bodies. They still have the old sin nature. They didn't have a rapture experience. This is the benefit of you need to get saved now. Hello. Okay. And so when they go into the millennial kingdom, even though the earth gets renovated to Garden of Eden-like conditions, and it's awesome again, and people will be able to live like a thousand years, like it records for us in the Genesis account, Okay, where it says in Isaiah, I believe, speaking of the millennial kingdom, if a person were to die at 100 years old, it's as if a baby died. So longevity of life's coming back. So even though they're going to experience the benefits of that, and Jesus literally ruling and reigning with angelic beings and with us, with resurrected bodies coming back, they're still going to rebel. Why? Because these are the people, the only people on the planet who have a sin nature. So that when Satan's released, he's working on those guys. Us? Not us. We don't have a sin nature, praise God. That got left behind. Now that'll preach. If you want something left behind, get saved and let it be your sin nature. Ooh, 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 that makes you stomp your foot. Uh, and uh, it's going at the rapture of the church. Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not, how can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying, okay? How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand, okay? Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. 
Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even his name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. I'm a I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step. To admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven. I need a savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the savior to save us. That's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us his son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against him and disqualified us that disqualified us for heaven right and we've actually seen this work in real life uh, for instance uh, there's been people who have committed crimes gone to court the gavel's been passed the judges said hey listen we all know you're guilty uh, you even admit you're guilty and uh, for your crimes you're going to not just jail you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty and did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row, it's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor, can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know it's actually on historical record that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty and they've refused to take it. And so even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive his pardon through Jesus Christ. 
Again, that's what he was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey, folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave. And the Bible says you will be saved. Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.